Hello and welcome to Volume 7, Issue 311 of Kane and Rinse. This is Actual Sunlight. You can play along with the show. The next five issues are Rampage, Resident Evil 3 Nemesis, also known as Biohazard 3 Last Escape. Uh, then it's Marvel Puzzle Quest. We continue Final Fantasy series with Final Fantasy 3. And the fifth game in our upcoming schedule is... Uh, a multi-game um, affair, Soul Edge, also known as Soul Blade, and also Soul Calibur, uh, in anticipation of Soul Calibur 6. We also have sister show Sound of Play, where on a weekly basis, on Wednesdays, we discuss uh, video game music and some of our favourite tracks and that kind of thing. Sometimes have uh, composers and the like on there as well. Uh, in this particular issue, 311, I'm James Carter, and joining me are Leah Haydu. Hello. Tony Atkins. Hello. And we have a special guest, Charlotte Cutts. Hello. Charlotte, uh, people may be familiar with you, obviously, from uh, your writing on Destructoid, but you have written a couple of uh, articles for Kane Rinse as well. Yes, I wrote an article on Danganronpa and an article on uh, Steinsgate as well. Um, I'm going to put the spoiler warning right up front here. This is a very story-heavy game. It's also a very short game, which means that almost everything we say is going to... It could be considered spoilerific, as it were, uh, on the narrative and the themes and what happens in the game and how how you interact with it, etc. So, um, the other thing I wanted to put here, I think it's wise to do so that uh, this game uh, is about depression, it's about mental uh, health and mental illness, uh, and also touches on suicide and obviously uh, not just as forewarning. Uh, for listeners, which is important, but also from our points of view, we're going to discuss that, and it's it's to varying degrees of having had um, experience of those things ourselves, uh, whether that be directly or indirectly. So, uh, I think fair warning needs to be given, and hopefully that kind of uh, covers it. On on that note, Simon Sloth, we're going to be hearing from several times. He had uh, quite a an excellent and long forum post that I've broken up and kind of divided throughout the show. Uh, and he started off by saying, uh, this is an intense, harrowing experience from the outset. At the start, it carries a warning, which I often ignore because I am old and mature enough to cope with most things the entertainment medium throws at me. This is another kettle of fish entirely. I must admit that I have never struggled with any kind of mental health issues as of yet, but I come across a lot of it in my line of work. I found the whole game emotionally draining and uncomfortable. I haven't looked into the creator, but I suspect that the main protagonist is not just a character, but a representation of the author's own experiences, as they are so vivid and intimate. Um, Yeah, right on the money there, Simon Sloth will obviously talk about a lot of uh, that that later on in terms of the author's own uh, relation to the the protagonist. On to actual sunlight then. Uh, All prefaces and warnings and setups uh, aside, we kind of usually start talking about development and people involved and and reviews. And so I thought we'd stick talking reviews initially, although I'm not entirely sure how (laughs) useful they are in in a game like this. They're entirely wrong. I feel awkward. I I don't know that you can (laughs) review a game like this. I mean, yes, it. Yeah. 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 We'll we'll get into this, but I think that it is worth noting that Mm this is the type of game where you're, and we've kind of touched on this already, uh, that your personal experience is really going to drive a lot of what you end up coming away with. So it's kind of odd to me to assign a number to it, but 
there are numbers assigned to it. So I guess that's where we're going. Obviously, any any color correspondence we get from this, any of our own personal feelings, and I think any of the, you know, if you're sitting down and actually trying to mark something out of this case, out of 100, out of 10, whatever it be, may be. I suppose if this, this game came out to be um, not sympathetic in any way being you know really judgmental about all this stuff and i think yeah you could probably review it and say well i don't think it particularly you know looked at you know, the issues what it's trying to tackle and it deserves a two because it you know it misunderstood its its um topic mm. fair enough but I, I you know the game doesn't do that so i think you're just left with this place of you know does it achieve what it sets out to do and i think that's more of a, an important argument over where mechanically it's very light yada yada yeah. yada so i just think you know yes does it achieve that I think absolutely. So, yeah, the, the fact that someone you, on Metacritic, you can say, well, it got a 75, so that makes it a, a good game to play. I just think that actually probably just highlights people going, well, I don't, I don't know, 7, seven out of 10, <laughs> probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's a, it's a difficult one to... Obviously, there's question of what the review means. Is it a, a product guide uh, in terms of analysing it from a consumer perspective, or is it something that you can review as a piece of uh, art. Uh, It's kind of funny that this is the conclusion that games like this often draw because Will O'Neill, as we'll get into, uh, who is the the main uh, developer and the writer of this game himself, uh, in uh, an interview with Ed Smith on Vice called uh, Actual Sunlight Might Be the Most Painfully Real Video Game You'll Ever Play. Um, he tackled this pretty directly and I thought it was worth hearing from him given it is his game. Uh, he says, I want everyone to play my game and I don't think the writing that I do is inaccessible. I think the vast majority of people, certainly the people you think of as stereotypical gamer dude bro types, they could get a lot out of actual sunlight. Whenever I see a review on Steam that's like, I don't know what the fuck this game is talking about and they've got something like 7,000 products registered to their account. They know what this game is about. They know exactly what it's about. I think we haven't reached the point yet where we put games into two separate baskets. Nobody in literature confuses a Harlequin novel with a high-end piece of fiction, and nobody says which of these two things should really exist. But in games, on Polygon, they, commentators, still argue about what I should, what should get a higher score between Gone Home and the latest Call of Duty, even though that argument makes no sense. I, I thought that summed things up pretty well. I've certainly said my piece on mm. the notion of what what's a game, not games, uh, the, the this is not a game argument. Um, I don't think it's particularly helpful, but this is not the first time I've heard a creator say that actually for them it might be useful to distinguish between something that's a more artistic experience and something that is more for entertainment uh, and those aren't mutually exclusive but obviously in this case uh, Will O'Neill's felt that if his game was put on Metacritic alongside a Call of Duty or something like that it wouldn't necessarily be uh, beneficial to compare it's and contrast those things. Because I don't, I don't think this game or any games like this are beyond critique. I think they're absolutely, you know, where they're at their you know, strongest is actually when people are looking and critiquing them. You know, word of mouth is a massive thing, especially for a game like this, um, you know, both forum posts and getting in the mainstream like Destructoid or Bollock and all that. Places like that. Um, but equally, at the same time, I'm, I'm sitting in the back of my head and thinking, well, actually, my closest comparison is to the moon, and I think I prefer that game. So in that case, you know, <laughs> am I actually doing yeah. a review in my own head? So, yeah, um, it's just, yeah, it's for, for me, it doesn't make sense to stick a number on something like this. I think it's, it's no. a bigger, broader conversation yeah. amongst, you know, 
enthusiast press, but also on front of mainstream press to yeah, for sure to let people know that this is this is an industry of just you know shooting games. But we know that anyway. We definitely know that in Kane Rince because yeah, we've covered many a game similar to this. Yeah. Well, I think that to to some extent those distinctions are already starting to be drawn because if you looked at just video games in general, even like ten years ago, you would probably not have this problem you or at least definitely not to the extent that it is now you see things like um and i still do not know so much about this term but you see things like the walking simulator and you see things like visual novels Mm -hmm. which i think this more closely kind of falls into yeah Yeah. Uh, and it just it it doesn't we haven't hit on a way to separate any kind of discussion about them consistently just yet but if you play a lot of games in general, and especially if you are in kind of circles where games are talked about, if, if you're the type of person who's listening to this podcast, um, then, you know, you, you kind of realize that there is a distinction between the types of games, even if you don't know what it is. And it's not just every video game is going to be you sitting down in front of, uh, you know, a, a computer or a TV or a console or whatever, and just, you know, jumping on things to smash them or to shoot things or whatever. You're going to have some kind of games that are going to be a little bit different and the goals are different and a lot more people I think now do understand that and of course there's definitely the the people who don't and will try to put it up against the Call of Duty and will try to assign a definite number to it but I, I think that we are heading in a better direction with that kind of thing or starting to anyway yeah yeah, yeah. I mean what I feel about this is that I feel like I couldn't attach a number to it because um, it's just such a personal experience. And I feel like there's a lot of people who, I'm not gonna try and not to get into the story too much because that's for later, but who are gonna not be able to identify with it maybe because their experiences were entirely different or people where it hits so close to home that they can't admit to themselves that um, they can identify with it. And it's such an uncomfortable experience that they might be tempted to attach a two to it when really if they were honest with themselves, maybe it deserves a nine. So I just, yeah. I don't know what the value is in really attaching numbers to this type of experience. I, I find it very hard to think of this game in terms of giving it a review number. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's um, really telling actually that when I was putting together show notes for, for this uh, issue, Google search is obviously a good place to start and you need to then dig a bit deeper. I was actually finding it much easier to find articles written about actual sunlight than reviews written about actual yeah. sunlight mm. uh, and i think that's that's a, a great signifier that um people wanted to write about this game they just didn't necessarily want it to be a review of this game they wanted yeah. it to be often reflective pieces years after having first played the game uh, mm. because of the way this game came out on multiple over a period of years um, it kind of did get another wind when uh, it came out on PlayStation Vita or when it came out on mobile devices, but it wasn't necessarily people looking to um, to write a review. Uh, it was people looking to interview uh, Will O'Neill about it. And I think that's that's mm-hmm. great that that has been the the response and the, it hasn't necessarily been a rush to um, a rush to review and to yeah to to judge a game with a number on it, which has its place, but possibly mm. less useful here fair play to will o'neill as well because i've seen i've seen will o'neill everywhere 
He's, yeah. he's front and centre. He does like five minute, you know, face on face interviews with people. I, I do yeah. like it. I mean, it's obviously a very personal game to him, and it would make sense for him. Obviously, is his game. So yeah, sure. the the layers yeah. aren't there, but it's just yeah, really interesting to actually feel like I I know him at least from you know the surface and, and stuff I've watched of him as a, mm. as a person that is you know willing to you know talk about his product and not just shy away from the limelight. And he's um, brutally honest. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. when he's in interviews about how this is very um, almost like when I first played through it I didn't know that it was sort of edging on an autobiographical game for him mm. and I was thinking in the back of my head is it really based on his experiences I really hope not because I follow Will on Twitter and I, I think he seems like a really nice person so it just made me sad to think that this might be autobiographical Um, And then I read some interviews in the run up to this show and he was like, yeah, this is pretty much autobiographical. And he was just so honest about um, his process of making the game. And I don't know, I just really respect that. Um, we'll we'll definitely hear more from Will throughout this show, not directly, but via interview uh, interviews that I've been uh, kind of collating and grabbing bits from. That I think are useful. So, uh, in terms of uh, Will, he began development on this game in summer two thousand and twelve, uh, which culminated about six months later in a freeware release uh, in two thousand thirteen, very early two thousand thirteen. In January to February two thousand thirteen, there was an Indiegogo campaign which raised. Um, 2,545 Canadian dollars, uh, which was um, over the 2,000 Canadian dollar target, um, which meant that he, uh, Will O'Neill, had the opportunity to turn this into a game, get it published on Steam and um, and kind of build the project out in the way that he hoped to. So in terms of credits, WZO Games Inc. is listed as developer and publisher, and that's Will O'Neill basically. Um, uh, he did um, uh, he did uh, work with a couple of artists uh, for the CG Art uh, Archia or Archia. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Um, did that, and then the character pixel art by Alina. Sekin or Sechkin. Apologies for pronunciation there. I'm I'm just kind of doing the best I can. Hopefully I managed somewhere between fumbling those to get somewhere close to it. Uh, the writer of the game is Will O'Neill himself, who also uh, did the the coding and development of the of the main game. Um, music provided by Ogre Sound. Um, uh, they have a SoundCloud page, I think, so you can find more from them there. Uh, the engine, initially the game was made in RPG Maker VX Ace. Uh, obviously RPG Maker will be familiar to plenty of people and there's lots of different builds of that. VX Ace being the one that uh, for the PC version of the game was used. Um, the game was then ported into Unity 5 and the Vita, iOS and Android uh, versions of the game were all uh, produced from Unity 5 with uh, Adventure Creator and the tile set is L- Lunaria, um, I think, just in case anyone wants to go and look that out. So the the PC and OS X release on Steam and Itch.io was 3rd of April 2014, as far as I can gather. Obviously, with independent releases, it becomes difficult to track down exactly when the release date was. You don't get so many press releases telling you exactly when it's going to be or anything. Uh, but uh, the Vita release was uh, a bit over a year, a year and sort of change on the 7th of October 2015. Um, and I think notably for 
certainly a couple of people who mentioned it on our forums and probably quite a lot of people that have played the game. Um, Actual Sunlight actually came to PlayStation Plus in October 2016. It was one of the Vita games in the in the set of PlayStation Plus games. Uh, late, kind of, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago now, pretty much, as we record. Um, which seems an unusual choice uh, to me. Simon Sloth on our forums again absolutely uh, agreed with that. He said, I downloaded and played this last year when it was included rather surprisingly in the Vita PlayStation Plus lineup. After playing it, I could not believe that someone at Sony had the bravery to not only suggest it be included, but that it made it through what I can only assume are multiple hurdles before making the final lineup. I imagine they must not have played it. Um, I hope that last <laughs> sentence isn't true, but uh, yeah. but yeah, it seems a surprise. I bet choice. somebody did. I bet not everybody who signed off on it did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rather than thinking it a surprising choice, which I think I, I agree it is, uh, I was pleased that that's the case. I, I hope that worked out, as always, um, for Will as the developer. Um, it seems likely that it got the game a lot more attention than perhaps it would have had before. Um I can't imagine that at least a few people didn't kind of pick this up, download it, and at least try it. Um, I'm sitting here excited. I, I didn't realise I probably owned a PlayStation Plus version of this game. <laughs> <laughs> I've played on the PC, so okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was there. Um, I yeah, I, I didn't actually check whether I had it in in my library, but like mm. you, Tony, probably somewhere in there. But yeah, so, but yeah not, not how I ended up playing it. Um, and iOS and Android releases, which, as far as I can tell, were the same week, if not the same day. Uh, late August, twenty ninth of August, two thousand seventeen, seems to be when uh, arrived there. So, uh, so yeah, spread over the course of kind of four years, there uh, various releases on different platforms. But it does mean that it's kind of a relatively easy game to find on a platform that you you might play games on which is good uh with that in mind uh we probably best talk about our histories and how we came to the game how we heard of it and where we played it and when we played it i should say as well uh leah would you like to kick us off sure so uh i actually was one of those people who uh picked up the game on uh, PlayStation Plus and mm. uh, played it pretty close to when I got it from PlayStation Plus. I don't I don't know exactly when it was, yeah. um, but I have a very vivid memory of um, when I played it, um, just kind of, um, I, I, I had wanted to uh, pick up something that I could just play on my Vita and kind of just, you know, for a little bit before I went to bed. So I do remember playing it all in one go. And it's, I, I don't recall if we mentioned this, but it is, it is a pretty short game. Um, usually I would say probably it maybe took me 90 minutes the first time through. Yeah. Um, and then I played it again this morning just because I really wanted it to be fresh before we, uh, mm. <laughs> before we came in to do yeah. this. And it took me about an hour. Um, and yeah, just, I, I just had this very vivid memory of just lying in bed with my Vita and just playing through the whole thing and just not really being able to put it down and I don't believe that I had heard of it before it was on PlayStation Plus mm-hmm. um, yeah. but uh, and and we'll you know get into uh, a little bit more uh, as we go along but yeah I, I I identified very strongly with this game um, and I had a pretty uh, 
a pretty big reaction to it. It, it, mm-hmm. it hit me pretty hard. Um, and uh, something that I, I actually did think of while, uh, while we were talking about um, just kind of how open uh, the developer, how open Will O'Neill has been. I, <laughs> right after I finished it, I remember that I just, I tweeted him immediately and said something like, yeah. you know, this, I, you know, just mentioned how, how, much this had affected me and he got back to me right away and and it seems like i do i did not follow him on twitter previously and i do now and mm. it seems like he is very responsive to people who uh you know have gotten a lot out of his games and who have uh who have had these kinds of reactions which i think is really cool as well absolutely yeah that's excellent fantastic uh charlotte i imagine you were the first of us to play this game but uh let's find out if i'm right um, you are absolutely incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so I actually first played this game in October. So mm-hmm. I didn't actually get a Vita until after the PS Plus um, promotion was um, sure. already yeah. done. Um, so basically I followed Will O'Neill before I even heard about this game because I tend to follow a lot of um, a lot of small developers to keep on, um, on track with what people are generally doing in the game dev um industry and so i I found out through his twitter that he was um for world health day mental health day in october that he was doing a bundle on itch.io of um this game and little red lie and i thought i'd buy it i didn't really know a lot about it and i knew it was a sort of game with a trigger warning attached and i wasn't quite sure how i felt about that but i just thought oh i want to support um small developers and i want to try something new out so i just bought the bundle um and then i left it about a month didn't really think of it and then i remembered oh i bought this bundle Mm. and so i then started by playing um by playing actual sunlight and um within like 15 minutes i realized that this was gonna affect me and that i probably um should have paid more attention to um the trigger warnings but i am very glad that i carried on with it because like like with leah it affected me quite a lot and i identified it with it quite a lot um, and then straight afterwards, I played Little Red Lie and enjoyed that as well and enjoyed it so much that I actually wrote about both of them because I couldn't really get them out of my head. Um, actually, yeah. like I'm going to remember yeah. my first experiences of playing Actual Sunlight quite strongly because mm-hmm. um, that entire month, two months, I was just playing a load of really dark and disturbing games like Doki Doki Literature Club and um, Steins Gate Zero and Chaos Child. And I, I got into a really bad existential funk for like <laughs> two months because of all these games I was playing. Yeah. Um, but basically that means that actual sunlight is sort of embedded in my brain now and I'm probably gonna write about it again when when the time comes because I'm not gonna be able to forget about this game. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, absolutely on board with, uh, with that. Um... Before I uh, talk about my play in the game, Tony, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm relatively new to it. Uh, it's when Leah put the put this. You know, um, this is her pick of games that she wanted to talk about this year on the show and the yeah. forthcoming stuff. Um, and as always, you know, I'm interested in, in new experience. And I have to say, I, I hadn't heard of it before. Before, so I was kind of my my ears pricked up because okay i've not heard of this this is clearly important to her and you know i want to check this out so put my name down uh next to it straight away and yeah only came to it this week so really fresh to it um still forming probably opinions about the whole game (laughs) which um hopefully you know today will will kind of come out and, and and make sense in my own mind yeah yeah um so in my case uh 
I don't know when I heard of actual sunlight. I know that I'd clearly heard enough of it that when it popped up on our, I guess, famous by this point, grand <laughs> spreadsheet of games <laughs> that we may one day cover, um, I, I knew enough that I put myself down as you know uh, interested in playing it and, and talking about it on the on the uh, the podcast. But but I don't know where I'd heard of it from. Uh, I don't know whether it popped up in a podcast, someone talked about it. Um, it seems unlikely because it hasn't received a massive amount of coverage by the point that, Leah, you put it onto the onto the spreadsheet. But, yeah. uh, but nonetheless, um, I, I was uh, down as uh, to be on this uh, this recording and intended to play it uh, back in January, actually. But um, what with other games to play for Kane and Rinse, I uh, didn't actually get round to it until Thursday this week because I was playing Bioshock Infinite up to that point um, for previous issue. Um, so yeah, this is all very fresh for me. But needless to say, uh, it had a pretty strong uh, left a pretty strong impression, uh, and not necessarily in ways that I'm particularly happy about. But uh, <laughs> but I think that's kind of the nature of it. Is to well, we'll get into into exactly the impression it left on me. Um, but uh, so in my case, I downloaded it on Android and played it on an Android tablet. I know oftentimes we get straight into talking about the game and forget to actually mention what kind of game this is. You've probably got a relatively uh, good idea of some of the themes it covers and some of the um, some of the story and and what kind of game it is. But in terms of actually moment to moment, uh, Will O'Neill's own description is that Actual Sunlight is a short interactive story about love, depression, and the corporation. Um, which is true, but I, I'm not entirely sure that necessarily hones us in on what it is. So I kind of cobbled together that it's an interactive text adventure, but in a 2D top-down environment. No, I think I think that that does nail it. Um, if if you just look at the uh, the graphics when you're moving your little uh, your little avatar around, mm. it looks like you know a 16-bit RPG or something yes, along definitely. those lines. But you don't. There are no battles, obviously, <laughs> except for the one that you're fighting in your brain. Uh-huh. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it um, it it has that look. But the main function that you'll be doing is you. Um, it's almost like an adventure game, I suppose, uh, in that you can go around and examine um, things in the environment, examine people in the environment and have uh, discussions in them. And then generally when you click on something or when you uh, when you go to examine something, you'll get kind of a little vignette uh, or it breaks to a, um, a story or a, um, a fantasy of the character or yeah. um, some kind of backstory uh, that'll kind of give you a little bit more insight into what the thing that you've clicked on means or where that yeah. could gu- kind of go. Yeah, and all of that is done via text boxes on the yes. on the screen, uh, which I think it's also important to say the way the text boxes appear, um, it doesn't necessarily put all the text there initially. You have to kind of uh, engage again, kind of click through, and it will deliver a bit more text and click through, which gives it a little bit of a different pace to sometimes in games that are text heavy. You can just have a, a screen full of text there to read, uh, whereas this kind of you read along. Uh, with the game, certainly on the in the Android version, I presume it's the same elsewhere. In another world, this could have been a text adventure. All of the uh, decisions you're making, all of the interaction you're doing, could could have been handled as a text adventure, given that most of the game is presented in text. And it is there's a lot of internal monologue, there's internal dialogue, and yeah. external dialogue as well. I was going to well, say so. the 
if you look at the, the way the text is presented, it's actually just, it's like the text yep. is being projected to you rather than just reading it as a story as such. Yeah. Um, yeah. Instead of just being on screen, like it, it's definitely you, you feel like you know you're following in somebody's life rather than just you know hearing it you know third yeah. party if that makes sense. You know, it's being or, or projected following to a the player. Train of yeah. train of thought style yeah. almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and to that to that point as well, I think that it's uh, in something that is this text heavy. I think that the maybe one of the things that people might bring against it is well why isn't this just a short story or why isn't this a novel or why does this this needs to be a game in my yeah, opinion it, it you have to be you have to be and especially towards the end of the game you need that experience of kind of going to something and seeing what that particular thing has to say to you yes. and towards yeah. the end of the game um there are a few places in which you'll have um choices and they're usually pretty minimal choices like if you go to the elevator in the beginning you know you'll get to pick whether you're going to the roof whether you're going to the street uh, you get to go you know it's it'll give you the the kind of standard go to work yes no um yeah. But towards the end of the game, those choices start getting taken away from you. Yeah. And and that is a really impactful thing that would be lost if this was only text. Building on what Leah said, um, you feel like you should have a way to make um, the characters life and what's happening to them a lot better but towards the end you just get backed into a corner and the fact that it's defying everything that you expect to happen in games is what yeah. makes it so powerful and such a powerful statement about depression in my opinion so i agree it couldn't be any other medium except for games onto the game itself uh starting off i think with probably the thing that's going to m not matter at least but it's going to have left the the least impression probably it certainly did on me and i think possibly it will have on others uh is the aesthetics just generally the, the visual design as mentioned the 2d pixel art is by alina sechkin or second apologies for pronunciation uh, and uh if you've seen any articles about this game there's a relatively good chance you've seen uh some of the character stills which were provided by uh, archaea or archaea again apologies for pronunciation I really like the way the game looks. I just, what I uh, mean when I say it's likely to matter slightly less is just that it, it wasn't the thing that I took away from the game despite really appreciating uh, both styles of art that are in the game. Uh, yeah, Charlotte, do, did you want to expand on anything to do with the uh, the visuals? Um, yes, actually, um, because of something that I um, read while I was preparing for this um, podcast. Um, somebody, I, I can't remember which article it was, um, said that the art style, the pixel art can be quite jarring at first because mm. it's quite cutesy and it's absolutely not a cutesy game. Yeah. Um, and I feel like in a way it was actually a pretty nice contrast because um, it's almost like mocking the traditional style of um, text adventure game, which might be, oh, the, um, the hero solves everything in the end and everything's okay, whereas that's not the message of this game at all. So I felt like even though they contrasted quite a lot and they didn't really, um, really fit together super well, I felt like that actually emphasized this whole, um, not everything's going to work out just fine mm. from the story. All of the art, uh, the... The character stills, actually, I, I really like the art style of. Uh, I, I imagine playing them on a, a large uh, computer screen would make a big difference. But actually, on, on tablet, they look pretty good. And I'm sure on, on Vita, mm -hmm. being scaled down slightly, uh, I can imagine those look uh, pretty striking, actually. Yeah, I um, I, I think that um, 
it, it's just kind of standard. Like it, it's what you might see in any kind of, and it's not that the 2D pixel art is bad. It's not, it's, it's perfectly fine. It's just that nothing really stands out because it is this just kind of standard view of the main character's life. And, you know, yeah. it's just what he goes through every day. It's always going to be the same thing. Nothing really changes nothing really matters to him in that way so i think that it's mm. perfectly natural that it would look kind of unremarkable uh, particularly the apartment mm -hmm. yeah because obviously uh, especially the main room of his apartment the idea is that that looks sparse yeah. and simple and um he has a chair and a video him, game and that's kind of it yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah to him un uninspired almost or uninspiring mm -hmm. i should say um, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's entirely fair. In terms of the the music, I have to say I think fairly minimal is a reasonable description yeah. of it. But in terms of setting tone, I think the section that really I noticed uh, much much more than uh, the rest of it was uh, after his first day at work that you that you play through. Um, you go back to Evan's apartment and he decides that he's had it with his life and starts smashing up the belongings in in his apartment. Um, or you start smashing them up because you are, after all, going to them and interacting with them. Um, and the screen kind of has a, a red filter over the top, but the music suddenly gets very uh, aggressive um, and there is um, and and goes for much lower um, tones and lower uh, register, I guess. Yeah. Um, and and definitely you feel um, the fact that the music is helping set the tone along with the filter and, and etc. is actually doing what the game games and character animations don't allow the character to convey i think the music picks up a, a massive amount of of that slack if you like the only thing that i really wanted to say was this is probably one of the only issues that i had uh with this game negative issues mm. that i had with this game is that there's a lot of text and that's not the problem the problem is that every letter gives you that little click sound so you have a lot of clicks and that it gets yeah. a little grating after a while. And that may also be kind of intentional because, I mean, it's, you know, it's everyday life kind of grating on you. So uh, it wasn't if it had been a longer game, I think that would have really bothered me. But it, here it just it it was irritating. And I'm not sure if that was the point or not, but I, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, I really appreciated the generally quite minimal sound design because yeah. I feel like the whole point of this game was not to make depression something. Um, I mean, internally for Evan, it's quite melodramatic mm -hmm. and the way he talks to himself is very overblown and everything's a big deal, but um, mm -hmm. it's not outwardly, like his outward life and what actually happens to him isn't really melodramatic. So sure. making it quite uh, muted and not super, um, super out there was very important i feel to the game to sort of um create that um to, to sort of emphasize that this is just a guy's everyday life i think from from my point of view as well yeah if if the music had aimed to lead the player towards what they should be feeling at any given moment that could have lessened the impact of feeling like you discover it on your own or or you feel it as evan experiences it so yeah from from that point of view yeah i can certainly think of uh 
drama sequences or action sequences where the music does intend to tell the player how to feel about what's going on or, or indeed in film tell the tell the uh, viewer how to feel it's actually um, funny um one of the, funny it's, it's, it's the um the end sequence is basically a lot of rushing wind i mean obviously you know for, yes, for context yeah, yeah. but you know less less about the you know the final final section but more about just him being there you know in the top of a building kind of this yeah. is you know and absolutely i i think you described it the best about leading the player to have mm-hmm. an emotion and you know we've talked about that before on certain games how like it's so desperate you desperate for you to have that emotion instead of telling it through story or telling it through um, an action in the game they're trying to tell yeah. you it through sound which is fantastic in its own right but can actually go completely wrong and actually feel like you're being manipulated by a game and i think yeah this is a, a less is more in this scenario uh, speaking of less is more, Will O'Neill's uh, take on the gameplay of Actual Sunlight is gameplay is minimal and serves only to move from one part of the admittedly text-heavy story to the next. The game fiercely attempts to be worth it. Will O'Neill's own words that gameplay is minimal, and I think we've kind of discussed that that is the case. Yeah. Mostly you are exploring five environments off the top of my head if you count the shower the bathroom and the bedroom as separate so um you you might get up to six or seven in that case but um you're exploring environments i think only one or two are bigger than the size of the screen that i was playing on the tablet certainly and then in those environments there are items or people that you can walk up to and interact with And, and as leah i think you mentioned um Sometimes those will be conversations with a person. Sometimes there will be an internal monologue about uh, an item. Or sometimes interacting with that will just cause Evan to reminisce or espouse about feelings that may be somehow related to what you've just clicked on. One of the only real... um... Uh, kind of instructions that you're given there aren't any you know there are no needs for tutorials really or anything like that but Mm. other than the content warning one of the only things that you get at the beginning of the game is an instruction that you should investigate everything um, because most of the things that you'll be able to click on and there's not a there's not a ton but uh, you know most of the things that you can click on will give you something Uh, in terms of uh, decisions in the game unless You guys are going to tell me otherwise. I was under the impression that the decisions have incredibly minimal impact in terms of, yeah, you can choose which direction to go in the lift, but you're not necessarily going to be able, if you go up to the roof, say, early in the game, you're not necessarily going to be able to do anything or change the course of the game. Yeah, I was going to ask that. And that's the only time, because obviously I played the game through and, and tried to avoid the option of going to the roof, you know, and understand what the, the, you know, the game was about and but i was unaware if i actually did go up the roof river that would be like yeah there's your game over screen straight away or whether it was just a roof and you'd go back down again so i never actually did go up to the roof until the end (laughs) when you have to me neither um yeah so i'm i'm not i'm not sure i kind of i kind of did what what your uh, air quotes supposed to do I actually did go, mm. like, I've played the game twice, and I think actually on both times I went up to the roof when you're first given the opportunity to, yeah. and nothing, it doesn't change anything. It's a roof. Yeah, yeah. So, we have Sinclair Greb's Gregstrom from the uh, the forum before we get on to story. His post is, I'd not heard a great deal about actual sunlight when it popped up as a PS Plus game back in 2016. After a bit of research, it sounded like a really interesting experience dealing with issues that have affected both me and those very close to me in the recent past. 
In the game, you jump into the life of a guy in his mid-30s, gripped by depression and self-loathing, and go through his daily grind as he tries to deal with his relentless emotional turmoil. It's heavy-duty stuff, to say the least. There's more reading to be done than there is actual gameplay over what is probably a 90-minute experience, but the writing is largely excellent, and while it can become frustrating, teeth-gnashing stuff at times, that seems all entirely purposeful in the part of author-developer Will O'Neill. It's a game I'd approach with caution depending upon your sensibilities and personal circumstances, and it's by no means an enjoyable piece on any level, but I came out of actual sunlight feeling like I'd experienced something important, an all-too-rare thing in video games. Um, That notion that this game has something about it that, as Sinclair Gregson says, not everyone's going to find enjoyable in the way that entertainment can be fun and enjoyable, but... There, there is an important, not even message, just a, an important perspective that the game offers, I, I would say, is, is fair. On the story, uh, it's been alluded to uh, previously by uh, both Charlotte and Leah. Um, Will O'Neill himself, in interviews, in various different ways, has said that the story of Actual Sunlight is almost 100% autobiographical. I think he said that some of the characters you meet are amalgamations, or amalgamations, I should say, of uh, different people from his uh, his life, but that the way that the story comes together and uh, the way that uh, his character is is pretty much uh, 100% autobiographical. I should say his character is Evan Winter, who is the um, the protagonist of the the game. I tried to kind of tease apart story and the characters, but I'm not entirely sure that I can. I think they end up kind of so closely intertwined that I thought possibly the best way to kind of talk about the story would be to talk about the the people in the game, uh, Evan himself, obviously, but then the other people and who they are to Evan, um, and uh, a bit about what we find out about his relationship and history, because obviously we jump into a point where Evan already knows a lot of the people that we encounter. Um, and has a history with them. Yeah, I think I think that's completely fair because if you're trying to sum up, uh, you could sum up the the backbone of the story in you know a sentence or two. You know, Evan is a mm. man in his 30s who uh, doesn't really see the point of what he is doing anymore, and where it really starts to flesh out is as you're saying with um, with his relationships to some of these characters. So yeah, we've talked a lot about Evan and the situation he is in. Um, a lot of the inner monologues we see when we interact with objects are about uh, how pointless Evan feels uh, a lot of what he does in his life, uh, whether it's things he chooses to do or whether it's his job, you know, things that he feels are forced upon him by others. He feels there is a deep pointlessness to almost everything, uh, I think it's fair to say. Um and and that really for me came to the fore in how he treated and has is shown to have treated uh, the people around him. And in terms of a lot of these characters, I think there are two points at which you can interact with most of them. Occasionally, you only see someone uh, once, and in the case of the the last uh, character on the list, I think you can speak to them three times. So uh, the first up is uh, Jackie, who is. Uh, a woman who works in Evan's office, who we are told immediately has, I think it's nondescript in terms of it's not 
mention exactly what her chronic illness uh, or disability is, but she has health issues that are recurring and uh, therefore kind of interfere with her ability to, to work. Evan has uh, become friends with her, is someone who she has relied on, I think it's fair to say, at times in the past. Um, he's kind of uh, helped her as a sounding board, but in the in the first instance, there I think there it's alluded to that he has kind of uh, helped with her getting to uh, or making her way to medical appointments. I can't remember exactly what it was that that made me think that, but I uh, do recall that. It seems. it seems like she it, it maybe Evan is the only one in the office who actually knows about this because it seems like she is hiding it pro- probably for fear of having it affect her work status I would I would assume and um yeah it, it seems like she kind of um becomes close to him not so much mm. completely by choice but because he's the one who found out somehow and reacted well to it that time. Mm. So it, it, it sounds, <laughs> I, I don't want to say she latches onto him, but it, it, it almost is that like she, she is very afraid. She comes off as a very fearful character to me. Like she does not. And, mm-hmm. and rightly so. I mean, it seems like this is something that's affecting her very, very much. And um, it, it, she probably could have found somebody better than Evan, as we see in the second time that you meet her. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, that's just kind of the way it went. Um, he was, he was the one who was there. So he's the one that's in this position now. Um, I think it's safe to say my read on that first situation, probably because of my own situation at work, which is I do have a chronic illness, but everyone at work knows about it and it's absolutely not a problem. So I didn't even think that the fact that she is hiding in the meeting room probably means that, yeah, very few people do know about it and it could well be. I didn't pick up on the fact that perhaps... uh, not to necessarily lead the listener by the nose too much. Perhaps Evan almost does have some information almost on her. That sounds like a really awful way to put it, but based on their second interaction, I think that's not necessarily too far wide of the mark in terms of a way to put it. Yeah, I, I, on that basis that already my read of Jackie is is slightly different, I'd be interested to know what people thought of the second uh, conversation that Evan has with her because it disturbed me no end, yes, I have to say. Yes, I, I, well, I guess I guess we could go ahead and say. Uh, the, yeah, yeah the second time that, um, that we meet Jackie is um, you come back in uh, and I, I believe the it's said something like it was months, several months later, or maybe several years later. I, I don't recall, but it it is a later meeting, and um, some things about the office have changed. Uh, and Jackie, um, you only get kind of a smallish conversation with her, but it's implied that she and Evan have been sleeping together. Uh, and yeah. the way that I read this was not so much that he was forcing the issue but probably that she came to him in some vulnerability and he took advantage of it because he's not popular with women he is frustrated that way you i mean you see a lot of um references to how um he is um he he doesn't have that kind of social life he doesn't really have a dating life he's very into pornography blah 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 um and yeah, I, I think that maybe if Jackie came to him because she felt comfortable around him because he um, he was the one to kind of care for her in that moment of vulnerability, she took it 
kind of t- in that direction and he almost seems to kind of blow her off when when this yeah. the second interaction takes place which yeah i agree is really disturbing because she trusted him and came to him this way and yeah. he kind of hit it and quit it if you if you will pardon the horrible uh the horrible ex- expression there that uh yeah, yeah. It, it i i agree about it being disturbing but uh I think um, the second time playing this through, I might have actually skipped the second encounter right. on accident. But now that I'm thinking about, like, I think I did experience it the first mm-hmm. time round. But I remember after the first one, there's a sort of um, internal monologue that um, Ethan has where he's talking about two vulnerable people just latching onto each other and um, yeah. basically having a relationship while being sort of disgusted with each other. And I felt like um, Ethan felt that he was somehow, um, sorry, Evan felt that he was somehow um, better than uh, yeah. Jackie. Yeah. And and that um, he thought that somehow, even though he feels inferior, he also feels superior. Like he's in this, in this sort of uncomfortable um, situation where he can't quite square what he wants with what he is. This you know? is kind of the one situation where someone yeah. needs him. It isn't him doing the needing. Yeah, mm. and, and because um, I think it's fair to say Jackie was not an object of desire to him in and of herself, aside from being a woman and therefore something that he feels that he's owed is something awful. But Evan identifies, and we'll come on to that with themes, two or three key things in his life that he feels he needs to make him happy or complete. And a relationship with a woman is one of them. Um but as we'll come to in a second, he has a very specific woman in mind for that. And therefore, yeah, the second interaction, uh, Jackie uh, says that she tried to call him and he didn't pick up. He makes some excuse about um, having been busy or whatever. Um, and there's very much the sense that he is now trying to put distance between them and that that is not what she expected to happen. Um, yeah, it, it's a really obviously awkward, but as I say, disturbing um, sequence because it does feel, especially uh, Leah with your read that I now having heard it, I agree with uh, on the first interaction that there, there could well be an aspect here of um, Evan having at least the notion that he's taken advantage um, of her vulnerability and the fact that he is effectively a confidant to her, um, which, yeah, is uh, as an opening for the way Evan treats the people around him is a heck of a, an opening, to say the least, and not going to be the first time that we uh, come across that. Um, Tony, did you have anything to say on Jackie in particular? I think you pretty much covered it. That's <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. Um, in in that case, we'll go to uh, to you with uh, Tori, who is uh, she works in the adjacent desk to Evan, and I think it's fair to say from their first conversation, seems to have a bit of kind of workplace banter, friends, but only really at work kind of relationship with Evan. Well, she's an object of his desire, isn't she? Yeah, I, I didn't necess- again. I didn't necessarily get that from the first conversation they have but if you don't pick up on it through any of evan's uh, monologues but this is where you have to be careful isn't it because I, I think um yeah in everyday life i think that happens in a lot of scenarios you know 
one person likes the per- another person, the other person doesn't read it at all and isn't showing that back. So, you know, I guess as you know, a male interpretation of what's happening on the screen, I can probably sympathise a little bit that way. But equally, I can understand the not enforced rejection, but yeah, you know, unaware rejection. And I, I think maybe that changes a little bit towards the end of it, um, as and when she, I think she moves on, doesn't she? Um, yeah. With her partner. I can remember that right. Um, uh, yes, yeah, she's engaged by the second time. Um, you, so obviously, that, that's yeah. also a, a trigger point for you know for for him in that scenario. So uh, yeah, I think it's it's actually uh, so the the second time she's much more cold towards Evan. Mm. I think it's fair to say Tori is, is leaving and is is friendly, but uh, when Evan suggests that they all go out for drinks after work, she shuts that down straight away. And it's not until you actually speak to Russell, who is unreliable to say the least but makes a very clear accusation towards Evan uh, and and immediately uh, obviously as you say Tony from uh, a male perspective on this immediately my thought was well why is she leaving not Evan if Evan's clearly done something to cause her not to want to be in that workplace why isn't he out on his ear and the answer to that's obvious isn't it is that he ha- he despite being the loser that he thinks he is still has the power he still has uh, uh, more of a stake in staying in his job than even she does and she's decided the easiest thing to do is to leave her job whether or not she wants to um, and just to get away from him that's the, the solution yeah. there which is uh, not obviously ideal for her but it's what she feels she has to do see it's interesting i had a completely different read on that um so i i mean there is definitely a pursuit of tori from the beginning um by evan uh and and you know as we've noted it's it's much more friendly seeming in the first um uh, in the first interaction although it has become kind of uncomfortable by the second time we meet them i don't trust what russell says he he, yeah when when you go up into russell because he's kind of hostile from the beginning and has never trust russell never Never trust trust russell Russell. (laughs) Um, but it it seems like there has been some kind of like nepotism here where he has been given this uh this supervisory position and maybe wasn't entirely qualified for it we we don't know for sure how good he is at his job but he's definitely a jerk so um but yeah you go up and you you speak to russell and Russell comes out with um with the accusation that um that Tori is leaving because of him because of Evan and I don't I don't think that I buy that I think that maybe people okay. in the office have noticed this interaction and how it has changed since she has become engaged and since she has decided to leave her explanation is something to the effect of I, I don't remember exactly what it is but like either her fiance got her a new job or she just found a new job that was going to be closer to where they were going to be living or something she doesn't she doesn't say it's because of you and and she i don't i don't think that that many people would specifically in this kind of situation uh and that that i could be wrong about that but um i think that that russell is kind of bringing bringing this accusation a little far um and it could be Mm. that 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 was a factor it could be that um you know that there was some discomfort but i don't I don't really see it as a situation where Tori necessarily would have gone to management or would have come to somebody else and said, "Listen, I I can't, yeah. I, I can't do this," or you know, or or I think made I agree any with that. I'm not. 
I'm not sure that she would have made a complaint, mm. but I think you know, on her own terms, she absolutely probably has decided, you know, that the easiest situation here is just to mm. move on. You know, my life will just continue happily and yeah. I'll find something else and I'll leave yeah. the, you know, the issues behind me. I think she's also, she wants to be a friend to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's yeah. tried, absolutely tried. But I, I think, yeah, for her, it's it's time just, to, okay, well, look, this is a passion in my life I, I need to move on mm. from. I've got my other stuff going. That's yeah. that. Um, and, I, and I, you know, once again, you, you talked about allegory of you know, other scenarios. It's it's how people deal with pressures put upon mm-hmm. them by other people. I mean, that's what life is. Everyone's got it in their everyday yeah. life. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, every read of this story, you can look of how you deal with it in the game versus how you would deal with it in a personal point of view, or how you should probably deal with it in you know, from a studies point of view. Of well, no, this is exactly how. But yeah, so it's. I think everyone who plays this is probably going to have a slightly different read. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the game's not, you know, so ambiguous that it's going to be entirely different because the choices are fairly, you know, I mean, her choice is to leave. So that's that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear that, you know, even maybe it is just a a male's perspective versus a female's perspective. And I I don't want to go down that route because it seems wrong in itself. (laughs) Well, I don't don't think so. I think, and you know, everybody's going to be a a little bit different. But no, I I think that, Mm. uh, and, and it depends also on, and this is going down uh, the personal route that I kind of expected that this episode was going to go down. But I mean, yeah. I I do work in an office job with a setting very much like this, and I have not had that particular situation, uh, you know, and not really had to deal with that. But, you know, I, I think that understanding that perspective is is going to be a little bit different according to whether you have had that in your career, if that makes sense, you know, just seeing yep. how those office yeah, politics kind of work. And I think that this feels very true to a lot of, and there are some things that are um, exaggerated. Um, we, we haven't talked about Troy yet, but um, Troy is a, uh, a character who basically spends every waking moment at the office and never, ever gets rewarded for it. In fact, he is told that he basically has to do this or he's going to get fired. And I think that that's maybe a little extreme in most situations, but you can definitely see, like, there are people at my job that I would think, yeah, they probably think that they need to be working this hard just to stay ahead of the curve. And it just, a lot of this rings very true to me. Um being in that kind of situation i think uh, so the thing that swung it for me was retrospectively uh, how quickly she shut him down on going for a works mm-hmm. night out that seemed very pointed and maybe it wasn't fair to presume that was because of evan but uh, i think she says i don't think that would be a good idea which seemed not until russell mentioned something did i think oh, okay but yeah initially she, she's very clear about the fact she's leaving to start her new life uh, her new soon to be married life with her partner and, and so that i think that's entirely fair i think it's meant to be ambiguous as well and i think evan's supposed to be in this in a position where he doesn't know for sure either obviously he would know if he'd done something that might cause that kind of reaction but equally well he might not realize he's done that i know that's a horrible thing to yeah. say but but he might not he's so focused on what other people are to him and not what he is to them he might not actually realize uh, i i think i so. don't think that he intentionally made himself offensive but that doesn't mean he wasn't 
That doesn't yeah. mean he didn't, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Self-awareness, yeah. not necessarily yeah. a strong point yeah. for Evan. Um, I mean, Evan is completely unreliable by yes. this point in the game, but I still feel like it was more um, probably that the entire workplace is like a house of cards now that Russell has taken over. So it's, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, yeah, not, sure. it's not just Evan, but it might be a combination of Evan being a bit too full on and Russell being a, a lunatic. Yeah. So. Uh, actually, uh, probably I think, uh, Russell, given we're talking about him so much, it is worth talking about just here quickly before we get on to, to Troy because uh, actually you're absolutely right. We are told in the first instance and in the second that Russell is uh, what I think is fair to call a middle management stereotype yeah. in that he his job is to justify his own job. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and if that means he pushes all the blame onto others and takes all the credit away from them, that's fine. So equally well, if Tori is leaving because he is running the place into the ground, it would behoove him to push that onto that blame onto Evan. So mm-hmm. again, that kind of raises the question of Russell's reliability, which is is nothing as far as I'm concerned. He um in the first meeting wants Evan to speak to his successful brother about Russell in terms of Russell possibly working with him um, and in the second instance then blames Evan for not having mentioned it uh, which Evan fairly weakly defends but uh, Evan clearly doesn't think much of Russell and and frankly in the game I wasn't inclined to think much of him either he seems like someone who is desperate to get what get ahead uh, and and get what he wants out of the situation and as I say is that not necessarily justified, I'm not saying I agree with the stereotype, but is that middle management stereotype of someone whose job it is is to uh, to be a sycophant to the people who have the money and power and to dump on the people who don't. Um, yeah, you're, you are not meant to like Russell. <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Troy, I think, is very interesting, though, because... Uh, so what happens between the first and second meeting, those uh, the, the gap of months, I think it's definitely supposed to be, is that Evan breaks down and destroys his apartment. That does happen before the second day, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm sure. Um, and uh, so he he's kind of come to... Not come to terms with, but he's accepted his view of himself as... Uh, pointless and everything in his life is pointless and in a fit of anger he he destroys anything that he had previously attached meaning to but has now decided is a weight on him and pulling him down um and so uh therefore that that's part of the 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 change in perspective between the first time we see Evan and the second plus what's happened in the intervening period and Troy is really interesting to me because in the first instance Troy is married with a, a nice house as far as I can tell uh, I think Evan specifically says that uh, who commutes a long way into work but seems very happy and it seems like he thinks Troy is someone who has been successful in the way that Evan thinks he can't or isn't being and then by the second meeting we see that not due to anything Evan's done necessarily but that's a completely uh, incorrect read a misread of Troy as, as a character Charlotte, uh, your your take on, on Troy, was there anything in particular that struck you about him? I kind of feel like, as um, Leah was mentioning, that Troy, um, yeah. there's probably a Troy in every single yeah. office workplace. Yeah. And um, I can definitely see a lot of myself in Troy, actually, like the, the need to prove yourself or the fear that if you don't work hard enough, then you're imminently going to get fired. Mm. And um, I feel like... 
It's, it's strange because he needed to work um, really hard to maintain this beautiful lifestyle the first time that we see him. Yeah. And then the second time, you don't even really know what he's working hard. Well, he's working hard for his alimony payments to his yeah. ex-wife. Um, but it's kind of like the basis for why he's even there has completely disappeared. He's just there because it's what he has to do to yeah. um, survive and just to keep going and there's the level of panic there because he doesn't even really know why he's in the job anymore but he just has to stay there for ridiculous hours to keep going and he's just a really really sad character uh, he, he also uh, seems to think that he should have been given Russell's job when that job became available uh, and hasn't got it and now is therefore at the mercy of Russell. And as you say, life has clearly got away from him uh, in ways that he hadn't intended and now he feels uh, stuck in a way that he probably was before, but now we see it from a slightly different uh, perspective, I think. I think it's mentioned the first time round that his um, wife is a stay-at-home mother, and I don't know if that's meant to be a comment on the whole, the entirety of the financial burden um, is on him, and mm. um, and it's always going to be on him. But that just kind of stuck out to me a little bit um, that maybe he feels like um, it's his role as a man to um, provide and. Yeah, there's definitely that notion to him, and and there is a certain amount of bitterness, but also I think jealousy in in the way Evan describes him in the first instance, and then I'm not sure I th- I th- that I think that does change by the second, but I'm not sure if Evan understands that Troy was never in the position that Evan thought he was. Um, Troy, I, th- I think it's fair to say Troy definitely is impacted least by Evan. I mean, he, he does ask Evan to help him out because he's Russell's dumping work on him and there's no way he's going to get through it. Uh, and and Evan just brushes off that uh, appeal for help in the second instance. So I guess that's the way that, that you see Evan kind of mistreating Troy is that he is in a position to be able to help and, and doesn't, which is kind of a running theme with Evan. Well, I, I think some of it is... is- you know, the, the, my reader Troy is just never judge a book by a cover. Just because yes. you assume, you know, he's got the you know the two point five children, perfect life. You know, it's mm-hmm. yeah. There's there's always issues that are, are happening behind the scenes. You know, um, I mean, I guess from the point of view, he's trying to, uh, well, uh, from a mental point of view, he's trying to attain what Troy has. Yeah. But you know, equally, once you're there, you know, he's just that kind of workaholic. Um, and even if he fi- found himself in Russell's job, it doesn't necessarily mean he'd be any more happier in his work. He'd probably just have more workload, more yes, yeah. more stress, and he'd probably be a bigger taskmaster than you know the idiot that is is Russell. I think almost like the redeeming feature of Russell would be he just looks at the system and kind of just goes, "The system is ridiculous, um, and I'm going to play it for for what it's worth for me." And yeah. you'd almost feel more sorry for Troy, kind of walking into that system and and putting his all into it, and kind of still being taken advantage by you know the higher ups. Um, maybe that's a terrible reading of uh, you know commercial society, but it's uh, it's absolutely one of the reasons why I'm self-employed <laughs> um, because I don't you know just office policy politics and having a wife in HR and all that other stuff like it it absolutely is one of the things that that drives me insane you know, I I I am a character that likes to you know make his destiny work for himself and trust me that is not easy um I, it has its own big problems that come with with trying to control your own destiny because ultimately the buck comes back to you when you actually do make a mistake but I'd also think that you know people in work 
you you are absolutely paranoid about you know doing something that could lead you to not having that job um yeah. because yes, we're, you yeah. know, we all fear that you know that one job we have is somehow a miracle that we got it in the first place and <laughs> um you know could yeah. i get a second one and like absolutely so i just think he's you know he's probably a bit of us all but he's the kind of the the um yeah, the extreme, the stereotype of, of what that person is in that office. Yeah. I think with the um, whole um, about Russell being the contrast to Troy and that Russell just goes after what he wants and get it gets it, I think a running theme in Will O'Neill's games is this whole, um, not necessarily anybody can do anything, but sort of like if you have the natural confidence and sort of arrogance to just go after what you want without questioning yourself at all, then generally as unfair as it is, society is going to favor you. Um, and you definitely see that in Little Red Lie with the second character, Arthur, um, Arthur Fox, because mm. um, he is a very borderline, I would say, narcissistic person. And he gets pretty much life just sorts itself out for him because mm. he's just boundless com- natural confidence. And I feel like um, that's a strong theme for pretty much all of the characters in um, actual sunlight is that if you have this inherent belief that everything you do is great and no self-doubt yeah. whatsoever then life will just sort itself out for mm. you <laughs> yeah yeah and i think um troy and russell are interesting from evan's perspective because it, it shows evan's delusion seems like a strong word but evan's got very fixed ideas about what he needs to have in his life to make his life whole mm-hmm and he thinks that once he gets those things, or if he can get those things, which he can't, but he wants to, um, that life suddenly comes easy. And what we actually see is that Russell is spinning exactly as much nonsense once he's got the job as he was before, and that Troy is working exactly as hard to keep the things that Evan thinks he has to work hard for as, as Evan would have to work to get them, you know, in order to keep his marriage together, to keep the house, to keep his job, to try and get the promotion. Troy is working insanely hard. That That's a direct undermining of what I think maybe I'm projecting onto Evan here. Evan sees as once he gets the things that make him happy, that would make him Troy, life then comes easier. Uh, and actually, I, that's Troy's truth is he works just as hard to try and keep hold of what he's got. Of of course, that I mean that's such a bigger conversation for, yeah. for absolutely everything. I mean, I, yeah, I, I suppose in some respects, you know, I have two children, a house, you know, a, a job that I do actually truly love. Mm. But I do, I do actually still look at some of my friends that are bachelors that you know can come come home and do as they wish, uh, have no res- you know no responsibility, but little responsibilities, mm. um, and seemingly endless amount of time to do the things that I feel like I don't have time to do anymore. Mm. Um, and I'm because I've made my peace with the fact that I have less time to have entertainment, my own entertainment in my life. Um, but that, you know, absolutely, you know, I'm sure from another point of view, I've got a bunch of friends that will look at my own life and go, well, you know, I want all those things. And yeah, sod yeah. having the time, you know, the time is just just time at this point for me. It's, you know, I've got tons of it. Who cares? Yeah. I want that. And, and you know, the truth is. It's somewhere in between, right? You you have to make the best of the situation. You have each and every person, um, yeah. and yeah, it's it's whether. I mean, this is what essentially the game's whole purpose is: is, is how you're dealing with that. Okay, uh, two characters that we only interact with once each, and kind of share the the same story. That's a horrible thing to say about two characters who have entirely separate personalities and backgrounds, etc. But to Evan, these 
two characters are, I think, interchangeable. And I don't think there's necessarily a great deal to say, except that for me, they showed... Evan was very quick to push a racist or xenophobic um, agenda onto one of the characters... Uh, or at least, uh, yeah, to to push onto one of them, um, and then was very quick to push, I, I, I guess, a, a male fancy perspective onto another one. He was very dismissive of these characters, but through lenses of, I think in both cases, Russell. So Natasha is someone who works but doesn't talk much to other members of staff, works in the same office as Evan. Uh, she is, I want to say Russian, but I'm not sure where I got that from, uh, but doesn't speak much English, which is why he thinks she doesn't talk all that much. And then in the second day at work, we find out that she has been let go because uh, Evan feels that Russell didn't want someone around who couldn't speak English. And she has been replaced with Eliza, who, correct me if I'm wrong, equally well doesn't speak all that much English, but in Evan's mind, is prettier and therefore Russell's got around for one reason and that is her looks and what he can make of that situation. Is is that a fair summation of those two characters in terms of Evan's perspective on yeah, them? Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, I, I just got the, the strongest feeling that dismissing Natasha because she couldn't speak English and dismissing Eliza because she was pretty, he's doing that through Russell but I'm not entirely sure that that's Russell's perspective on the matter, m- much more that it's possibly Evans, but he doesn't want to be the, the xenophobe or that kind of misogynist, so he pushes those feelings onto someone else. So I would completely uh, believe that these were Russell's feelings, because Russell seems like a big jerk, sure. but I don't know yeah. that I don't know that Evan necessarily has any proof of that. I think he's just maybe amplifying uh, things that were already there to to come up with these explanations. Yeah, I think um, I think that this is how Russell probably feels, but I feel like um, what depression does to, e- to Evan, keep saying Ethan, <laughs> uh, what to Evan is that um, it sort of twists his thoughts yeah. and he sort of goes to extremes yeah. with everything and with that can come hate, hateful thoughts, xenophobic thoughts, um, he he references quite often um, this idea of like the privilege that he holds and just dismisses it. And yeah. I think I think because of this anger and this um, sort of a mixture of anger and um, sort of disappointment about his life, like contorts all of his thoughts to have this really dark lens over them. So I feel like Evan probably is quite a um, sort of prejudiced person but i think that might be coming from the the horrible filter that goes in front of front of you when when you have something like depression yeah he's able to sugarcoat or suppress those thoughts when he's happier but once that happiness goes away he finds it less easy to 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 put on that kind of polite uh filter over his what he's thinking yeah i think that's yeah i think that's entirely fair and yeah that's kind of what i was feeling about Evan whether or not that's how he feels that's somewhere he's very quick to go to when talk when thinking about Russell's motivations which was was troubling to me as as you say Liam maybe he's you know R- Russell gives every indication that he may well be exactly like that uh yeah so the the last character that uh, I particularly wanted to talk about I don't think I'm unfairly leaving any other characters out necessarily um 
I think this is the only character you see three times. That's the the homeless man who is outside Evan's building twice, and he is on the the metro once, isn't he? Is that right? Yeah. Again, this is about what these people are to Evan and what what not what they can do for him, but what they mean to him, I guess. The first interaction's relatively polite. He says he doesn't have a cigarette, but uh, we we later find out that Evan gives him some money every day. So this guy is a self esteem boost for Evan, right? That was my feeling. Yes, on it. and and yeah. also I think that this is probably the most direct example that we get of how Evan wants other people to see him and how he views yeah. interpersonal relationships as transactional because he is giving this man money every day, but he's not doing it for this man. He's doing it so that this man is going to see him as somebody who is uh, beneficial to him is going to see him as a good guy and that's mirrored in the relationship that he has with jackie right because i mean he is he is doing this for her but he's not necessarily doing it for her to make her feel better or to help her it's so that she will sleep with him or that so that she will see him as a good guy and yeah i i think that this is probably like the the biggest punch in that direction um, because he is literally giving money for a a, a positive reaction because he seems very upset that this guy doesn't know who he is yeah and and the the last of the interactions with him it's very clear that evan loses his temper with him as soon as he realizes that he's not as important to the homeless man as he yeah. thought or the the fact that he's giving something to the homeless man should be enough despite the fact even if it's something as simple as he gives him money instead of cigarettes the homeless guy feels he needs cigarettes whether or not that's a right thing to give to a homeless person it is immaterial that's what the homeless uh, man's needs are and i keep saying homeless man because in the game he's unnamed and i think again that's important to to evan this is a homeless yeah. man he doesn't know his name he doesn't attempt to find out anything about him he certainly doesn't accept that what he's saying he wants cigarettes is what he actually wants he thinks i'll give him money and doesn't understand that yes to to someone else giving them some money well they can go and buy cigarettes then yes but that to to this man in this situation who is homeless who is vulnerable who is um you know in some way or another a victim of society that may not actually be as as helpful as he thinks he's being um charlotte how did that character uh, feel to you um i think he served to underline that um not universally but often people with depression um seem to have a very sort of a, a view that's very focused on themselves and everything is about about their own experience. And so um, not only the homeless man, but also the woman with the fruit cart. Yes. Um, Evan um, makes a comment about how she must think he's really sad for buying something from her cart every day. And she probably doesn't remember Evan that well. She's He's probably like one of a hundred people yeah. that she serves in that day. And it's it's the same with the homeless man. He takes it really personally because, um, you know, from Evan's point of view, he does something kind for this man every day. And why doesn't he remember him? And why isn't he grateful? And mm. it's really not about Evan, but no. because of his, the way he sees the world, everything yeah. is about Evan. I think it's interesting the, the things that we all feel are similar about the interactions that Evan has and, and the things that we feel are different. It really does go to show that, there is some stuff that was clearly, well, not even necessarily intended, but was going to be seen a certain way by uh, players. And there's some stuff where there is kind of an ambiguity there um, that you can you can then uh, put a bit of yourself into or, you know, your own experiences. 
we're going to talk about uh, themes. I think we've kind of uh, built up to this and probably talked about quite a lot of what we would have to say about the themes of this game. Um, but just to kind of kick us off, uh, there were a couple of posts, one that responds to uh, another that I wanted to uh, to read through first, uh, and then we'll tuck in. So uh, this forum post was from Mark Hoog, who says, When you break a bone, people worriedly wish you a speedy recovery. When you're severely oppressed, people smile and say a walk in the sun will cheer you up. Sadly, depression is still something that a lot of people don't fully grasp or even take seriously. Actual Sunlight, unfortunately, is not a game that will truly open people's minds on the subject. I have to say, Will O'Neill truly deserves praise for pouring so much of his personal experience into this interactive essay. And if anyone who suffers from depression gets something good out of it, that's great. Having been around the block on the subject myself up to the point where I received treatment for the better part of a year, I can say that a lot of the game's text rings absolutely uncannily true. The self-deprecation, the drudgery of simple everyday life, the drinking, the feeling you've missed your moment in life, heck, even the defeat in failing to write that one book. All harrowingly familiar terrain. On the plus side to paraphrase, I'm still sexy even at 35. At the same time, in its short runtime, Actual Sunlight paints a somewhat superficial stereotypical portrait of depression. Its protagonist is an overweight man who plays video games, hates his dreary, off- dreary office job and can't get a woman. Autobiography or not, the less educated might shrug and say, of course this guy's depressed. It felt implied that depression was as a result of life choices and personal attributes instead of it being an illness that can befall anyone. And while the writing was excellent, at times reminding me of Fight Club's snappy socio-cynicism, it relished way too much in bashing corporate greed and modern lifestyle. Yes, that inner voice does come with the condition, but compared to my personal experience, its focus felt a bit off. The majority of NPC conversations express similar social commentary rather than truly conveying, conveying what it feels like to interact with people when you didn't want to wake up in the morning in the first place. Again, I applaud the creator for making actual sunlight, and I believe his intentions to be totally sincere, but as a nuanced insight into depression, it just falls short. Maybe it simply is too short, too straightforward. Games are a visual medium after all, so why not use graphics to visually represent some of the many phases and feelings of depression instead of text-bombing me with social criticism? P.S. If one really wishes to get a better understanding of the illness, I would rather recommend uh, reading William... Styron's book Darkness Visible or even Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf and in response to that uh, Chopper on the forums uh, says I should say up front that I don't know very much about depression at all so my reaction to the game is limited to my personal impressions from someone who doesn't understand much about the condition and hopefully doesn't cause any offence if I'm insensitive I really liked the game, but it wasn't until reading Mark Hoog's comments above that my own thoughts made sense. All through the game I was thinking, I have a lot in common with the protagonist. Up to my mid-thirties I led the same lifestyle with its unhealthy attitude to alcohol and drugs, lived lived the corporate life, maintained several haphazard near relationships, and generally lived what is presented in the game as a shallow and meaningless life. However, unlike the protagonist, I actually really enjoyed that time. I know it sounds extremely facile, but it ties in with Mark's point that depression is implied in the game to be a result of life choices and personal attributes. All through the game I was thinking, the protagonist is essentially me. The only difference between us is that he's depressed and I'm not. This made me think of depression as an unknowable X factor of some sort, and while the game may be an accurate representation, I don't think it helped me understand it in any way. 
which is fair enough, it's not the author's responsibility to explain anything, but I actually do think that in my case, by presenting it through the social slash lifestyle lens, the game does build a barrier and reinforces the common idea that depression is just a mental thing that you can get over. It doesn't communicate much more than life is shallow and meaningless, and leans much more on that than providing a more nuanced view of the condition. All that said, I like this game a lot. I'm, it made for some very uncomfortable reading, and I had to think a lot about my own experiences and how they were reflected in the game. It's presented its broader themes and the narrator's daily struggle very well, and was uncomfortable but engaging throughout. That kind of gives us a lot to talk about, I'm sure. In terms of themes of the game, I th- we have touched on a lot of these before, just but especially by talking about the story and the characters in the game. Loneliness uh, and and wealth and employment are mentioned, as I said, time and again by Evan as being things that he feels are wrong or missing in his life, as, as being things that, that he needs to change, but he doesn't have the ability or the, the understanding of how to do that. We we talked about his relationship to the homeless man. We talked about his relationship to Russell and his his job as well. He yes, as as mentioned above, he does have a a dream of being a writer, and that goes unfulfilled in in the game. I I I'm not sure I necessarily have anything else to to add to that. These are kind of parts of Evans depression on the whole so i'm sure we'll talk about it when we get there was there anything on uh evan's loneliness and um his employment situation and money situation in particular that struck you guys as as being important so i think that actually what i what i want to do right now is kind of respond to the two um sure the, the absolutely two pieces of feedback um that that we just looked at um because i <laughs> i I guess I kind of fall somewhere in the middle here because uh, I can see some mm. really good points on on both of those. Now, I, I I will say that I did not feel that it that it failed in in its in what it was trying to do in in kind of explaining and kind of bringing some things into uh, into focus. What I will say is that I I can see where maybe it wouldn't have resonated with everyone uh and it seems reading through both of these uh these pieces of feedback that it's not necessarily a question of whether you have experienced uh depression issues in your life or not i personally have dealt with depression for a long time and sometimes have been more difficult than others. Um, I have been lucky enough that I have kind of fallen into a, um, uh, a, a series of solutions that have, have worked quite well for me, uh, but it hasn't always been like that. I am, I'm 37 and, you know, a lot of my 20s were taken up with things that I very heavily resonated towards here. Uh, and I am not a, um, a single man in a, uh, a single overweight man in, you know, the, the, in a city. Uh, I, that's, so, I mean, I, I am not, there are some things in Evan's life that, that do, you know, that do directly correlate to some things uh, that I yeah. personally experience. You know, I play a lot of video games. Mm-hmm. I, I am mm-hmm. single. I do have an office job, you know, but there are other things that don't. And despite that, I, a lot of the, the emotional impact, a lot of the things that he is saying just 
they really did hit me in a way that I, I find very difficult to dismiss as, oh, well, it's not, it's not really like that, or it's not, um, it's not bringing other people in. I think that, I, I think that some of this is going to, is going to be a, a very direct correlation uh, for a lot of people, myself included. And even though not everything is, it, it's more a question of emotionally, how does this resonate with you? And, and maybe that's maybe that's not the the <laughs> the clearest explanation of it. But I, I think that there's there's a ground in between. This isn't explaining it to everyone. Uh, who hasn't experienced depression directly, and mm. you know this is this is perfect. This is everything. There, there's something in between that. I, I don't think that everybody is going to get the same uh, the same impact out of this game. But I think that enough people will, and enough people do, that yeah. it's it is very important, and and it certainly was to me. So um, yeah, I. I I, I kind of found the, the, these two uh, these two pieces of feedback really interesting in the way that they kind of bounced yeah, off each other yeah. and um, mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh, I, I think that's my soapbox for now. <laughs> I think probably now is a good time to, to talk about my own feelings because I actually feel like um, Mark probably summed up how I feel about the game in its entirety mm. in his one post so and I think some of that's more from an, an analytical point of view kind of looking at the game for what it is in, in this structure of a game. Um, I think a better example um, to me is To the Moon mm. which is four hours long it's roughly about four hours long which isn't a particularly long game in itself but I think some of the problems um, I had playing Actual Sunlight was its brevity is a plus and a minus to it so mm. you can kind of sit down you can take its themes and you can run through it and it's all done in one, one sitting and you can kind of sit back and, and kind of look at you know, the story that's been told for you but I think something like To the Moon because you you spend that extra time, you know, three times as long with the characters. It's not all about the point. I think the time you hit Evan's life, like he's he's already on this journey. Like his journey to you know committing suicide is kind of formed and set. Um, I wonder if there's a really interesting game here where we know him from his younger life, his kind of more happy-go-lucky life. So the actual impact of the moment he decides that to take his own life is that much more powerful. And, and that's some of the aspects that we see in To the Moon, for example, which is, you know, the building up of understanding the characters and ultimately someone's death. So I think, you know, from an analytical point of view, I think what happens a lot is because you want to click on everything, you want to explore everything, there's kind of like almost that simplification of feelings towards everything because there's so much as like oh this is how i feel about my games console and this is how i feel about my sofa my bed my shower my you know toaster everything in his life has a a, a saying back to it you know and it's and it's almost like little cliff notes of every single thing so in some respects it's like oh yeah i guess you know he has an opinion about everything but equally it's like well actually he probably has an opinion about none of this stuff a lot of this stuff is just a name stuff in his life now the, the yeah. problem is I'm not saying I haven't suffered in depression because I think everybody has elements of their lives where they are, you know, depressed in some regards. And I find myself getting towards the end of um, Actual Sunlight both well, certainly frustrated with Evan because I think I I see those elements of like, no, you can just do this. You can just do this. And of course, yeah. the point of this game is to take you through that journey where someone's gone beyond that, where they, they have 
yeah, they've eclipsed the understanding of you. Well, why don't you just change this one aspect and you'll be fine? And I'm and I'm sure we all had the same feelings that when we ended up on top of that roof, and you explored every way which way to get off that thing. Like I don't, you know, when your choice is just go to the roof, yes, yes, yes. And we're like, well, you know, as me, I was so frustrated that I couldn't go. No, no, because there's another way. Like just take yourself down the park and do something. But of course, that's not what this story has to tell. So I think. In some respects, the brevity of it has an impact, but I also think it takes away a little bit. And I think, you know, that's probably multiple things. One, you know, time, to, yeah, obviously, he, as a mm. project, he had to get funded towards the end to actually get out there. So making a game three times as long isn't really a, an ideal scenario. But, uh, you know, I'm glad it exists because we're talking about these themes and these themes are very rarely in games. But at the same time, I think analytically, back to that whole, can you review a game? Can you watch your score? I think, you know, there is elements. I think if he had more time, it would make it more of a, a powerful impact. I think that it's interesting that you speak of how frustrating it can be at the end, because I, I totally agree. The the um, We haven't really explicitly spoken. We, we've alluded a lot to the end of the game. Um, and <laughs> I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, just Not in sure. brief, um, what happens is um, one day you, at the very end of the game, you get up and everything that you try to interact with gives you the same message, which is go to the roof and jump off. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you look at. Everything gives you that same message. And when you yeah. finally leave your apartment, there there is no way to not do this other than to turn the game off. Um, but yeah. the only way to proceed is you go out and you go to the elevator. But instead of being able to proceed and to go to work, all of the options are just go to the roof. Uh, and... And it is frustrating, and I I think well that that is absolutely intentional because that's that's the message that it's trying to get across is that when you are that deep into into depression and when you are there is no choice. It seems I mean for you they're just you can't that's that's the whole thing is that it is like having three options and having them all be the exact same thing and not being able to do anything else yeah. and it's so difficult to explain that to somebody who has never really experienced it and it's not that they don't want to understand it it's that it's just it, it is so unthinkable to somebody who has not had that level mm. of mental illness that you could just not have a choice and I, again, I will say that I am lucky in that I have not, I have not experienced suicidal tendencies like that. It's just, it, that's not been a thing for me, but I have been in situations before where it was not a choice to not get out of bed. There was no other way to proceed. And, and so I, I, it, I understand, I really do. And, and Okay. So I, yeah, I, I really do get that. And I think that that's, that's what makes it so powerful for me is that you can be really frustrated in not having that choice because that's, yeah. that's what it is. There is no choice in that situation. And that, that's what I think that's, that's a very lonely place. It is, yes. And point. I think that that's mm. what, that's what made it ring so powerfully to me is that it just, yeah, that, that, is, that can definitely be the way it is. So I've had occasions where I've been, I felt very depressed. And um, so I have felt like I had to just push myself and just 
get out there and do what I needed to do um, in the sense of I was at university and I was very, very in a very high pressure environment. And there was no choice but to just go on with things or you would get kicked out. And I, I, I managed to, you know, do what we want Evan to do, which is just to push past the feelings and just to get on with your everyday life. But it leaves massive scars if you just keep pushing forwards and ignoring what's going on in the background. So it's so for some people, it's very... People can see some people with depression who do just get on with their everyday life, but they don't see the the marks that he leaves behind to just push on and just ignore the deep, deep down feelings. The the, the best way uh, I can explain, Tony, your particular frustrations is, I think we've all been, I, I, I think it's a universal or universal enough experience that we've looked at someone else who's who's got a problem in their life and we can see an easy solution. That's true of the problems we have in our life as well. Someone else can look at them and think they've got an easy solution. That doesn't mean we don't feel that they are significant problems and maybe even insurmountable problems um, because a problem you experience feels far worse than one that someone else experiences. Mm-hmm. It's just... The way, and that's not to say you don't have empathy for that other person or sympathy for that other person. It's just it feels like the ways in which you don't have control can can overwhelm the ways in which you do. I felt like the portrayal of depression throughout was um, fairly um, accurate to my, um, a lot more extreme than what I felt, but it was um, quite a good uh, mirror of what I felt mm-hmm. in the past. There was one thing though that I did I wasn't quite happy with how it was portrayed. Yeah. And this is the um monologue where um it's actually Will O'Neill talking to the player where he talks sure. about if you're a younger player then I think he ends with the line, Don't you dare yeah. like don't you dare compare yourself with Evan. And when I played the game I was tw- for the first time I was twenty five, so I was in that category where Will O'Neill um was saying to me, Don't try to apply this to your experiences. And to be honest, a lot of this game did ring true with me as a 25-year-old. I live in a city, I have an office job, I um, share an apartment and um, struggling to think of how I could eventually perhaps own my own house. Um, So for Will O'Neill to break this fourth wall, I know it wasn't meant to be a universal message, but I I felt like it it sort of made the game fall into the trap of, I couldn't quite decide whether it was supposed to be a very specific portrayal of depression yeah. Or everybody's portrayal of uh, portrayal of depression in general, because it was like saying, um, "This is Ethan. Um, this is Evan's specific um, experience." But at the same time, maybe you can draw something from it. But if you're under a certain age, then don't compare yourself. It just felt very inconsistent in that way. I'd, I'd imagine some of that would be aimed for actually, you know, a lot younger people. I mean, 25. You got your, your faculties just about where right. I'm just saying that even you know a teenage audience, they absolutely are you know scrounging around for any kind of information about how they feel in life and you know this game does a, a good job i think of actually describing the worst outcome um in the in these scenarios so it's not like it's you know it's pushing someone to a uh, an ultimate decision i think if anything it's trying to help them stop that so i i agree with charlotte i don't you know i understand the warning is there in place because it's a difficult subject but equally if we don't talk about this subject mm. with even our own children, you know, even at a young age about, you know, falling and not worrying about, you know, or looking out for the pitfalls, then absolutely. Now, you could argue this game, you don't want children at a real on the age to, to understand necessarily the, the concept of suicide, etc. But I do think, you know, there's lessons to be learned, certainly in, in teenagers even, um, seeing, you know, how 
vulnerable they can be and how if they don't let things be unchecked how far you can actually take these scenarios so i yeah i completely agree sure i i found that quite an odd message at the front of that game i had a different read on that because i I yeah yeah. i when i thought that it was very powerful so what what we're talking about here is um i i believe it's the first time you leave your apartment to go to work there's uh there's kind of a younger couple who's standing outside and if you examine them you get a message from that that is uh as i think tony said fourth wall breaking that um that is you know essentially aimed at younger 20 somethings who might feel the same and it, it kind of goes through you know how people might compare themselves to it and ends up with him saying don't you dare and i took that very differently uh i did not take that as don't you dare compare yourself to evan Mm -hmm. and and how he's feeling i took it to be don't you dare react the way don't be him don't don't completely give up and don't uh don't you know don't come to the conclusion that this is how it's going to end no matter what you do um, I believe there's still a chance. Yeah, yeah. I, I I had a more positive read on it, and I can definitely see how it how it could seem the other way. But I I'm not yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that that's what he intended necessarily. I, I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. So so my take on it was uh, I think slightly different again in that the, the letter was supposed to say two people who are who are younger, and and he has actually in an interview uh, I forget which one mm-hmm. said that the numbers aren't hard and set in stone but they are what they they are what the numbers were for him mm-hmm. and that'll change person to sure. person but there's a point at which if you feel the way he feels and explains his feelings through Evan in this game um if you're young enough there is still time to turn all of that around but he feels like there was a threshold past which he he felt no longer felt that that a lot of the ways he could have turned it around when he was younger were open to him. Uh, the don't you dare, I um, I guess I I I knew where the game was going. Uh, I think I, I, I'm not suggesting that I had any special read in the, on the game, but when I saw don't you dare, I thought that was a very specific, direct message to young people to not dare consider suicide, frankly. Yeah. Um, to say that you may feel all of these things, there is hope, and absolutely do not dare go to where my head went. That's not an option, which is... I'm not necessarily saying that's a better way to speak to younger people who may be feeling de- feelings of depression or have depression. But I, th- I think that to me was almost a, a very clear extension of the disclaimer of this could speak to a young person in a way where they might feel the only option is to, to do what he feels he has to do at the end of this game, which we will get onto in a second. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because um, obviously it's autobiographical, but, um, you know... But clearly we, it didn't end clear, the same yeah, way, yeah. yeah. Clearly there, I wonder what the off so, yeah. for him personally was. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, actually. One thing I just wanted to say, I think in terms of the themes that I've laid out here, we have kind of covered a lot of them in talking through this and we're kind of getting short on time. So one thing I did want to say in terms of wealth employment and what you were just saying then, Charlotte, about... Um, pushing through and papering over the cracks uh your article that uh, that you wrote that I'll recommend everyone goes and reads if they're listening to this which is called actual sunlight little red lie and the relationship between wealth and health uh which was posted on destructoid um author charlotte cutts obviously um 
a lot of what you were saying there about specifically wealth and health uh, relates uh, quite well, I think, to what you were saying about uh, your own situation where you felt like pushing through was what you had to do, but it didn't help you in the long run. It didn't help you deal with the cracks as they were appearing in the same way that money can feel like it's going to help, but it's not going to be the solution in the long term if you're using it to paper over cracks instead of actually dealing with the the problems. Um, So I'd absolutely recommend that people uh, check out that article um, as mentioned on Destructoid. Uh, So in terms of the the ending, um, we had a post uh, from uh, Telepri on the forums that I want to read out and then I want to talk about whether or not there's any ambiguity in the uh, in the ending. Um, so Telepri on the forum says, I played Actual Sunlight on August 14th, 2015. This isn't some fact that I hold on to, I just looked at the trophies on the Vita, but I knew it was a fair bit of time ago and wanted to know where I would have been in my life at that time. August of 2015 would have been the start of my second and last year as a computer science major. There are very few low points in my life that I look back on and still feel the same hurt that I did at that time. And my time in computer science is certainly not one of those. But the feelings I had about myself and about the path I was uh, I was on were most definitely real at the time. Having not seriously talked to more than one person about these things at the time, and that person not being a medical professional, I don't know if I was depressed, but I was certainly something, something not good. Actual Sunlight did not leave a huge impression on me, not like other games that tackle similar themes. As others have said, I saw myself in the main character, lonely, unsatisfied with what I was doing, struggling to get up in the morning and not wanting to sleep at night because then it starts all over. But there was a moment in the game that stuck with me. I don't remember exactly what it said, but I believe O'Neill was speaking directly to me, the player. He said that if I were still in my 20s or teens or whatever, that I still had time and that I shouldn't be feeling the way he was. Maybe even that it was wrong to be feeling the way he was. That's something that I've carried with me, even if I feel as if everything has gone to hell. My life is really only at its beginning. I can still change. I still have time. It just takes action. For some people, myself, that action is finding what you care about and enjoy and leaving behind what makes you miserable. For others, it's reaching out for help, professional or otherwise. I don't know how to end this, so I guess I'll just say for anyone reading this that may need it, something that was said to me when I really needed it. You matter. If you're depressed or suicidal, find someone to talk to. Here's a list of crisis hotlines, and then on our forum he's, he's linked to, uh, actually, unusually for Wikipedia possibly, uh, a very useful list of uh, on Wikipedia of uh, suicide crisis lines that are listed by country, so you can find uh, something that's available online or uh, over the phone in your own country. So uh, on, the, on the ending, you go up to the roof, that's your only option in the game, you walk to the edge of the roof, the only part of the roof that has a, an exit from it, if if we can call it that. Um, and you've been told for the past, uh, well, the whole of the game, but certainly the past sort of 10 minutes of the game, that this is where you're headed. Um, and Evan stands on the edge and talks about how he suddenly feels light and suddenly feels different. And as you mentioned, Tony, obviously Will O'Neill, uh, this being almost 100% autobiographical, uh, got to this point. The fact the game exists means that he didn't then and hasn't yet done what it's implied, I think, Evan does, which means there's, I think, some room for inference here as to what happens and whether that change in the way that he feels signals that he's doing the right thing or signals that there's a possibility 
he could be doing the wrong thing. Just in terms of if if he can feel hopeful again, if he can feel different, if he can feel light, if he can feel like the troubles are going, it's possible he could feel that way without this being the ultimate outcome. That was my read on it. Maybe that's too hopeful. I wondered what you guys thought. Um, so the first time I played it, I was pretty convinced that he jumped and I felt very sad and mm. didn't really have the perspective on the game that I have now where I thought, oh, well, there should have been an option to save him, you know, and now I realize that that's completely besides the point of the game to have an option to have him visibly back off and then go down the um, elevator. Um, I felt on the second time playing through that I don't think he actually jumped. I think, but I don't think that he left with any hope. I think he probably maybe at the time felt a sense of hope and a sense of, oh, not today, but maybe it went back to the same old cycle of um, self-doubt. Um, it takes a really big push to make the changes that Evan clearly needs in his life. And I don't know if we had any any signposting that he was at that stage just yet. So I'm not as hopeful as you. Yeah, I actually um, <laughs> I actually had a very similar read on that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know that he necessarily did jump because I think that that would be too big of a decision for him to make. I, you know, in a way, in a very dark, dark way, that would be him trying to do something to fix it. And as, as backwards as that is, it, it would seem that way to him. And I don't think that he would be able to commit enough in his own mind to make that kind of change. Uh, even if it's completely the wrong decision, it, I think that he would have been more comfortable in his life just continuing on and just continuing to, to be as he was um, that, than he would trying to do something, no matter how dark that something was. I, I think that's almost the intended read is that it goes, well, it clearly goes to a very dark place, the whole game does. Um and maybe I was just again projecting some of myself onto to Evan in in the the hope that being in a situation like that it can be turned around. Okay, uh, let's hit up the three word reviews. Um, we'll just go in order that I've written uh, in the show notes, and I will kick us off. Um, Simon Sloth says, "Actually, no sunlight." Um, Gareth Cutcliffe says, "Difficult to review." Uh, Groovy Reg says, "Barrel of laughs." Mark Hogland got bad ending. And uh, finally, Mike Diver, previously on the show, uh, says dead end job. But um, uh, okay, uh, it's time to summarize our thoughts. Uh, sometimes this goes as kind of would you recommend others play this? But I think it's perfectly reasonable, especially for this game. But generally, just to talk about how our ultimate feelings about the game. And uh, Charlotte, as our special guest, I wondered if you might kick us off. Yeah, so my final thoughts on this game is that it's um, not exactly an enjoyable experience, but it's one that's for the most people will be worth having. Um, I would say just if you have any experience with the themes to just um, think very carefully about the time in which you pick to play the game, because I kind of wish maybe that I'd paid more attention to the the warning that it contains sensitive themes because it can really be um, quite, it's very, very full on. And I feel like I didn't really um, talk about this during the podcast, but I sometimes feel the writing can be a little bit overwrought and it's very extreme in the sort of thought patterns that sometimes happen with people who have depression. But um, yeah, w people who have depression tend to have these very melodramatic and very dark 
thoughts. So um, I felt like it was a very accurate, for, for what my experiences were, it was a very accurate portrayal of depression. Um, and I really appreciated the fact that um, Will O'Neill decided to make a game that was about depression, but not where everything got resolved and everything was fine, but rather a, um, a realistic depiction of the fact that it, it's something that you live with for your entire life. You just have to learn to deal with it or you just sort of drag yourself along. Um, I feel like it was a really, really good portrayal of um, what life is like for the average person with something like depression. And therefore, if you want a better understanding of depression and you're willing to do the, the mental legwork that is required to fully get on board with the game, then I would definitely recommend playing it. Tony, how about yourself? I would have the reading that I think maybe Evan's life does get better because if you can take it as autobiographical, um, Will O'Neill's went on to make this game. So, you know, if we if we led to believe that he would be the one on the precipice there, mm-hmm. then he went on to make a game which I think is an important game. I think there's issues with it, and I think some of that is absolutely to do with how uh, the brevity of the experience. These tub- these subjects absolutely should be. Uh, explored in the uh, the medium of video games and you know that's why it, it's important and um yeah whether it's, it's it's hard something to recommend because i think if you are you are having feelings which the games explores hope well hopefully it shows you that maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel if you can take the fact that you know will o'neill went on to you know produce something that you're playing and hopefully understanding um so for me yeah i'm glad i i got the opportunity to sit down and run through it for myself um i've never been diagnosed with depression i think that's important to say because there is a distinction there between depressed feelings and clinical uh depression but i saw more of myself than i would probably care to admit in in uh in evan um i i definitely didn't see some of the things in evan that i found very uncomfortable about his his character uh and that's a, a relief but i but there was uh I mean, starting from notions of of privilege as well, asking whether it's okay to feel bad about the problems that you have, knowing that there are people out there who are worse off than you. Uh, and there's there's always for for all of us, we can point to someone and say, well, they clearly are in a worse situation than me, maybe in a different way. Um, but that doesn't mean that the problems you have don't feel hopeless or or insurmountable sometimes. Uh, and I've certainly uh, been in that situation, and I'm in that situation in some ways. And what this game. Uh, showed me uh, or reiterated it's something that uh, I think has, has been apparent to me for a long time is uh, those those problems, those issues, those cracks have to be taken seriously you can't let them run on because they will widen, they will deepen, they will get worse and uh, I'm not going to suggest I've ever been in the in the place where th- this game ends up but to, to see enough of my self or my behaviours in Evan uh, to worry me is is a bit of a cautionary tale, I think. And uh, yeah, I don't even know how to say whether I think this game is good, bad or otherwise. I think it is important is exactly the word I would uh, choose. I think for an hour and uh, relatively little money, n- none at all, if you've already got it on PlayStation Plus, uh, I-, I think this is important to play, but I would echo what Charlotte has to say. Uh, make sure you take seriously the disclaimers and the warnings that we've given and that are in the game, um, because it-, it does not pull punches and won't shirk away from uh, uncomfortable truths about people who may be in some ways like Will or or Evan. Um yeah, that's uh, that's my piece on on the game. Uh, 
Leah, you asked to cover this game. I think hopefully it's been obvious why you asked for that. <laughs> yes. I wondered if you would, uh, you would like to tell us uh, your kind of final thoughts on the game. I find it much, much more common for games to make me feel good, or at least to come away from a game with some idea of what I was supposed to feel. And I... I definitely felt very strongly about actual sunlight, but whether it was just my personal past or whether it was the time that I played it or what, whatever it was, I suspect it was a combination of a lot of things. This really just has stayed with me since the first time that I played it. Um, and it really did mean a lot to me. It, I, I have heard uh, something that I don't know that I ever really heard prior to maybe a year or so ago um, was people saying that um, ga specifically games uh, made them felt seen. And this game did that for me. It really made me yeah. feel seen. It made me feel like somebody understood and maybe this doesn't end in a way that I would want it to end, but... I, th I think that it's very important to understand that it's not something that only one person is experiencing. There are a lot of people who don't understand depression, a lot of people who have never really, really had to deal with it. And I envy that to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. But to another extent, it it helps to know that it's not just you. Uh, and it helps to know that there are there are ways out and the, the way out is not jumping off a roof you know it's it's that's never something that i think should even be considered but it's something that yeah. people will think and I, I i guess if i could give people anything to come away with um from this from this episode or from uh this game in general it would be that this if if you if you start with the with the thought that there is understanding it also means that there's other people doing this and it also means that there is there is a path that you can take that does not end this way uh to kind of <laughs> to kind of echo what one of our correspondents said you do matter and there are things that you can do yeah. and there is always a way to reach out so if if you play this game or if you don't either way if you hear anything in here that speaks to you then then just you know, know that there are, there are ways, there are things that you can do and it's not going to be the same for everybody, but it is very serious. And I hope that everybody can, um, you know, reach out, do what you need to do and, uh, you know, just take it as seriously as if you had broken your leg. <laughs> um, and yeah. it, yeah, it absolutely. you'll hopefully come out the other side. <laughs> Oh, and also play the game. Yes, I, I do want to recommend that. I guess I kind of got lost <laughs> there, but um, but yeah, I. It's it's perhaps a, a strange set of uh, of summaries and, and uh, recommendations. Seems like such an odd thing when you're talking about something like this, but but yeah, I think it's testament to uh, the discussion we've had uh, how 
important and meaningful this game's been to everyone. So thank you, uh, everyone, for sharing, and thank you, obviously, for listening. Um, Charlotte, we mentioned uh, your article um, on actual sunlight and little red lie on uh, on Destructoid. Uh, is there mm-hmm. anywhere else you'd like to uh, invite listeners to contact you or see your work? Um, so pretty much most of my writing nowadays is on Destructoid. Um, I tend to write on Sundays. Um, the other place where you might want to just check out what I'm up to is on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is um, C Cuts Games. So yeah, my first initial, then my last name, then Games. Um, besides, besides that, not really much else to plug. No, no, that's absolutely fine. That's uh, that's excellent. It's always uh, good just to let uh, listeners know if they've uh, particularly enjoyed what you've said. There's a good chance they'll particularly enjoy what you write. So. Uh, so yeah, check those out. Uh, it remains for me, James, to thank Leah, Tony, and our special guest, Charlotte Cutts, as well as our correspondents, um, which were absolutely excellent this episode. Thank you very much yeah. for everything that uh, was on the forums and uh, our three-word reviews. Uh, our editor, Jay, big thanks to him, obviously, and uh, all of you for listening. Uh, we will see you next time. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, or best of all, uh, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash kinrings. Next time in issue 312, a giant ape, a giant lizard, a giant werewolf will be tearing down Kinrins towers, and it's up to Leon the Rock Cox to put an end to their rampage and wrangle them into chatting about video games instead. I am so sorry to the other people on that podcast for the comparison. <laughs>